Hello and welcome to edition number 1947 of the Whitney Talking News, which we are recording in the High Street Methodist Church in Whitney. I'm Nigel James and I have edited this edition, and beside me at the recording controls we have Rob Oxspring. This week we have items mainly from the Whitney Gazette. Our four readers today are Dorothy Allen, Anne Crawford, John Ashwell and Andrew Dilger. So we'll go to our first story, which is about the start of building in Haley, which is going to be read by Dorothy. Um, and the heading for this article is Start of Build on Small Estate of Affordable, in inverted commas, Village Homes. A groundbreaking ceremony marked the start of work on a development of 22 affordable homes near Whitney. Housing Association Sovereign and Contractors E.G. Carter & Co. celebrated work starting at Gurnells Road in Haley. Permission for the development of affordable rent and shared ownership homes was granted in October. Each home will be fitted with solar panels, air source heat pumps and improved building fabric. The two and three bedroom homes also come with parking and access to the public right of way as well as the neighbouring playing field and local village. Planning permission was previously granted for nine large homes on the same 2.7-acre site for private sale. Sovereign's application provided a greater number of homes to better address the demand for local housing, it said. The homes are expected to be completed in early 2024. <coughs> Joanna Smith, Development Manager at Sovereign, said... It's hugely encouraging to see work starting on site to deliver these sustainable and energy efficient homes. Sustainability and energy use are something on all our minds right now and I'm pleased the homes being delivered will be more affordable to run. This is all thanks to the measures we are taking to make them energy efficient. This development showcases our ability to deliver affordable homes at a time of real need. And John has our next article, which is about MPs urging school bus talks. Yes, it's MPs urging urgent rethink on school bus cancellations. The scrapping of a school bus scheme, which will make it more difficult for 200 children to get to classes, has been condemned by MPs. Conservative MPs have demanded an urgent rethink of Oxfordshire County Council's decision to cancel the Spare Seats Initiative on school buses. The scheme allows parents and carers who did not qualify for free home-to-school transport to pay for seats on buses where there were spaces. This academic year, parents can pay £244 a term for a seat if the journey is three miles or more. But the council is withdrawing the scheme on nine routes, affecting more than 200 children from September. MPs say parents should have been consulted, and the move is at odds with the council's environmental ambitions. Affected routes are 2ML05, serving the Marlborough School Woodstock, 3WG02, route Haley to Woodstock, Woodgreen School in Whitney and 3 the CA55 to St Joseph's School Carterton the council says the services are no longer affordable but parents said that they should have been asked whether they were willing to contribute to keep the scheme going 
Oxfordshire's Tory MPs, Robert Courts, Victoria Prentice, David Johnston and John Howell, issued a joint statement which said, We are very concerned to hear about the County Council's decision to withdraw the spare seats scheme on some services. Our constituents have told us that they are worried about the impact it will have, with some considering reducing work hours or changing roles to allow them time to drive their children to and from school. It is unacceptable that the County Council have taken this decision without any consultation. The MPs added, it also goes against the County Council's own environmental ambitions. They have promised to reduce car journeys by one in four this this decade, yet are forcing parents to drive their children to and from school. We are very concerned about children's safety as they are expected to walk along busy roads not served by footpaths to get to school. But the council said we are reducing the number of spare seats in the scheme on certain contracts that need to be renewed and where we currently have high levels of students travelling who are not entitled to free home to school transport. We are very mindful when making these difficult decisions of the impact on parents who will have to make alternative arrangements and on the environment and reducing carbon. This has to be the balance against any of the council's budgets. Our next item is about a Just Stop Oil protest and is going to be read by Anne. Yes, Just Stop Oil protest has caused risk of harm at the Formula One track. Just Stop Oil protesters, including an Oxfordshire man, caused an immediate risk of serious harm to Formula One drivers and race marshals and invading the track during last year's British Grand Prix, prosecutor said. A jury at Northampton Crown Court was shown in-car footage of F1 stars Yuki Tanuda and Esteban Okun passing three men and two women who were sitting sitting on and being dragged off Silverstone's Wellington Strait last July. Video recorded by Lewis Hamilton's car passing protesters shortly before the track invaders was also shown during the Crown prosecuting speech, along with video statements issued by, by five of the six defendants who were on trial. Oxfordshire man David Baldwin, Emily Brocklebank, Alistair Gibson, Louise McKechnie, Bethany Mogul and Joshua Smith deny causing public nuisance at the circuit. Brocklebank of Yeadon Leeds, Gibson from Aberdeen, Mogul from St Albans, McKechnie from Manchester and Smith from Leeds in Oakham went on to the race circuit during the protest. Protest. Baldwin of Stonesfield, Oxfordshire, was found in a car park with glue, cable ties and a banner and is said by the Crown to have been in it together with his co-defendants. Prosecutor Simon Jones said, As events upholded, the F1 Grand Prix had started and it was under a red flag 
after a serious accident had occurred at the very start. They will inevitably say that this was done as an act of protest and in order to bring publicity to the cause and demand they make of no, no new oil and gas licences. The trial continues. And Andrew's article is about a family tribute to Tyrone Johnson. Family tribute after Bryce Meadow murder. The alleged victim in a Bryce Norton murder probe has been described as unique, kind, loyal and irreplaceable. Tyrone Johnson, 28, died at a house in Lock Court on the Bryce Meadow New Build Estate on January the 16th. Police were called to the cul-de-sac at 10.30pm by the ambulance service following reports of a disturbance at the detached red brick property. In a tribute released via Thames Valley Police, Mr Johnson's family said, Tyrone brought joy, kindness and endless love to our family. He was a bright light that lit up our lives. He was unique, kind, loyal and irreplaceable. He's left his many friends and family so many special memories that we shall treasure. We will miss him forever. A post-mortem conducted by a Home Office pathologist was unable to conclusively establish the cause of Mr Johnson's death. Two men, aged 44 and 28, from Carterton and Milton Keynes respectively, were arrested on suspicion of murder, but have since been released on police bail. The Carterton man had been arrested in Abertillery, South Wales, by officers from Gwent Police. The younger of the two suspects was arrested in South Lee, Oxfordshire. Senior investigating officer DCI John Capps said, We are treating the incident as a murder inquiry due to the reports of a disturbance at the property late on Monday evening, together with witness accounts to date. Although we believe that this incident occurred inside a property, I would appeal to anybody who feels that they have any information that can assist this investigation to please get in touch with Thames Valley Police. Anyone with information was asked to call police on 101 or Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800 555 111. That's 0800 555 one one one. Senior Coroner Darren Salter told Oxford Coroner's Court last Thursday, Thames Valley Police continues to investigate the circumstances of his death. His cause of death remains under investigation. Mr Johnson's mother was said to have identified the man's body to a detective constable at Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Buckinghamshire. The court heard that Mr Johnson was born in London in March 1994. He was not working at the time of his death and lived in Aylesbury. Mr Salter said a date for a full inquest would depend on the outcome of the police investigation. The heading for this item is Park Closure Follows Health and Safety Fears. 
A well-used country park in West Oxfordshire has had to close due to health and safety concerns. Kilkenny Lane Country Park in Elmshurst Way, Carterton, was closed to the public because some of the equipment in its play park was deemed not safe to use. A spokesperson for West Oxfordshire District Council said the council was working hard to repair the equipment. The park, which is usually open all day every day and free to enter, is between Bryce Norton and Carterton. There are 2.5 kilometres of footpaths and bridleways and adventure play area and horse sculptures. Free parking is available at the car park in Elmshurst Way, 50 metres from the play area. The second item is about a pensioner who's missing. A pensioner known to frequent the Oxford and Whitney area has been reported missing. A man named police by police as Philip, 79, was reported missing from the Whitney area on Saturday. He is described as 5 foot 8 inches tall, slim and was wearing a dark thick overcoat and dark trousers. A man was also reported missing from Kidlington earlier this month, but was quickly found by Thames Valley Police. Nima Gafora was last seen at a Burger King in the Orchard Centre in Didcot on January the 12th. However, police officers found him the next day. Now, two short items. <clears throat> a man with a tiger and poor tattoos reported missing. A man with a tattoo of a tiger on his left arm has been reported missing. Police are appealing for help in locating Benjamin Munder, who is described as a white male around five foot nine tall, slim and with brown hair and blue eyes. Mr Manda has three tattoos, one on his left arm of a tiger, one on his back of the infinity symbol and one on his chest of a paw print and EM. He could be wearing a middle-length blue overcoat and possibly a beanie hat. He went missing from the Whitney area, but has links to Oxford, specifically Cowley Road. Anyone who sees him or has information that might help police locate him is asked to call 101. And the second item <clears throat> is headed Sex Assault at RAF Base. A man aged 58 was due to appear in court this week on charges of sexual assault at RAF Bryce Norton. Douglas Varney of Strathmore Close Carterton was scheduled to appear at Oxford Magistrates Court charged with two counts of sexual assault at the base last year. Next month we'll see the sentencing of children's home abuser Gerald Jerry Raphael. The former soldier, 74, was found guilty in December of the sexual abuse on boys at care homes in Yarnton and near Wallingford in the 1980s. He admitted to two charges of indecent assault. Drug kingpin's lover jailed for warehousing cocaine supply. The girlfriend of a Whitney drugs kingpin has been jailed for five years for her involvement in his multi-million pound cocaine conspiracy. Sophie Plowman let Richard Gray store kilos of the Class A drug at her flat in Sonthrust Road, Banbury, and also let more than £24,000 in dirty cash be laundered through her bank account. In May 2021, when police raided the flat where she lived with her primary school-aged son, 
2.5 kilo of cocaine was found under a cabinet. Packaging equipment was also discovered. Jailing her for five years at Oxford Crown Court last week, Judge Michael Gledhill KC said it beggared belief the single mum had found herself in the dock. Plowman of Mill Meadow Whitney was found guilty last September of conspiracy to supply Class A drugs. The wider conspiracy, which started in 2020, was said to have peddled at least 55 kilos of cocaine over a year. Plowman was agreed to have been involved in the supply of around 10 k although it was unclear whether she was aware of every package stored at her flat. She paid thousands of pounds of dirty cash into her bank account, later transferring it to Gray. Prosecuting Lisa Goddard said last week, The Crown accept clearly that Miss Plowman was used by Richard Gray in order to further his drug-dealing operation. She acted only on the direction his direction. It's a further accepted that Miss Plowman was in a vulnerable state when Mr Gray first met her. Plowman had taken, become pregnant by Gray, who already had a long-term partner and children in Whitney. Lucy Tapper, in mitigating circumstances, said her client was groomed by Richard Gray, believing he loved her. She noted evidence that Richard Gray had sought to hide his activities in her flat and from her. The barrister questioned the police, the police's tactics by smashing Plowman's door with a battering ram in May 2021. The arrest, during which she was unable to comfort her small son, was described as an incredibly traumatic encounter occurrence and experience. Judge Gledhill told Plowman, nobody questions the fact that you've, you're an excellent mother, you're a good daughter, you care for your mother with her medical problems, you assist your sister with her childcare arrangements. How on earth does it come about that a woman such as you should be sitting in the court facing a substantial term of, in, of imprisonment. Gray, previously described by the judge as a serial philanderer, was jailed for 21 years last July. Other members of the gang, including Brother Patrick, were jailed for a total of more than 50 years. And the headline of this article, which is also about crime, is... Questions terror for Nanny as gang raids luxury goods. A brazen gang smashed their way into a farmhouse while a five-year-old child slept upstairs. The five men, one of whom was armed with a crowbar, made the girl's 55-year-old Nanny kneel before they quizzed her on the location of valuables. Thames Valley Police said the group prized a gun safe from the wall of a secluded farmhouse near Ensham. They also took designer watches and bags and a 69-plate Nissan Duke that, collectively, was worth £200,000. 
Investigating officer D.S. Simon Pond of Banbury Police Station told the Gazette, We are conducting a very detailed investigation and we will do all we can to identify and arrest those individuals and ensure, for the sake of the victims, that the full weight of the law is applied. He added of the aggravated burglary, It is certainly one of the most brazen attacks on a property that I've seen. The gang was said to have smashed an upstairs hallway window in order to get into the property at between 9.10pm and 9.20pm on Friday, January the 27th. Inside the house at the time was a 55-year-old nanny and a 5-year-old girl who was asleep upstairs. Her parents were out at the time. Mr. Pond said the woman had been forced to kneel on the ground, while the gang members, whose faces were covered, demanded to know where various valuables were. The house was then ransacked. The gang stole goods worth £200,000, including the nanny's mobile phone and her blue Nissan Duke car, with the partial number plate WU. 69. A £10,000 black Hermes Birkin bag, a diamond necklace worth £40,000, and Rolex, Patek Philippe, and Bremont watches worth an estimated £55,000 were among the designer goods taken. Also stolen was a firearms safe that contained H&H, Ticker, and Smith & Wesson rifles, as well as Beretta and Armson shotguns. The five men left the scene in the stolen Nissan Duke and a getaway car, a dark-coloured coupé, described by the police as possibly an Audi S5 or A5. Mr Pond told the Mail that the victim was still distressed by what happened. She was clearly very audibly and visibly distressed on the CCTV footage. You can tell it was a traumatic experience. We're speaking to her every day. He added of the child's parents, who were not in the house at the time, Similarly, they are very upset by what's happened. It was only by chance they weren't there at all. Detectives have conducted CCTV and house-to-house enquiries in the surrounding area. Anyone who had seen either the Nissan Duke or the Audi Coupe on the night of the raid was urged to come forward. Investigators were said to be probing a number of lines of inquiry, including whether the raid was planned and linked to the sighting of a man near the house on the afternoon of January the 9th. Anyone with information can call 101. Information can also be left via Crime Stoppers by calling 0800 555 111 and I know we've had that before but 0800 555 111. And now it's quiz time. First, the answers to last week's quiz, which were a mixed bag. Question one. Bora, Scirocco and Mistral are all types of what? And the answer is wind. 
Question two. Which black and white Antarctic bird can swim but not fly? And the answer is... Penguin. A penguin, yeah. yes. Question three. What nationality is the fashion designer Giorgio Armani? And the answer is... Italian. Italian. And the fourth question, what is the main flavour of the Greek drink ouzo? And the answer is aniseed, yes. And question five, what metal was mined in stanneries? And the answer is tin, yes. And so on to this week's questions, and they're all related to food and drink. Question one. From which part of the palm tree is the dessert sago obtained? Question two. What do you add to Welsh rarebit to get buck rarebit? Question three. Which soup, translated into English, means pepper water? Question four. What does the word trocken mean on a German wine bottle? And five... Did Louis Pasteur invent the pasteurisation process in the 17th, 18th or 19th century? And the answers to all those questions will be given next week. So off we go to our next story, which again is uh, related to burglaries. And we don't want you to think that all all stories are about burglaries uh, because they're very rare. And this one's about somebody looking for a man called Ben. And it's going to be read by Dorothy. Burglar said she was looking for a man called Ben. A repeat burglar broke into a lone woman's house, then claimed she was looking for a man called Ben. Kimberly Young's victim was shocked to see the 51-year-old at her bedroom door on March the 29th, Oxford Crown Court heard. The burglar of Clay Pitts Lane, East Challow, was said to have apologised and run out of the house in Manor Road, Ducklington. A witness then saw Young try a door in Field and Close. In a statement, the burglar claimed to have been offered a lift back to Wantage by someone called Ben. She knew Ben lived in Ducklington and thought he lived in the first house she entered. She tried the door of the second, believing Ben lived at that address. Young claimed to have had no intention of stealing. Two drawers appeared to have been looked in at the first property. Young pleaded guilty to burglary and attempted burglary. The court heard she had 28 offences on her record, including six burglary convictions, most committed before her gender transition. She was a third strike house burglar, meaning a minimum three-year sentence. Judge Michael Gledhill KC imposed 29 months imprisonment. Alice Aubrey Fletcher, mitigating, said... Young has stayed out of trouble trouble for the best part of a decade when she was living in Bristol, doing a job she loved and was clean from the drug problem that had blighted her early life. It was accepted that she was under the influence on the day of the burglary, having, in inverted commas, fallen off the wagon. And now we have a much more pleasant story. Um, It's headed up half-sized Spitfire built in a shed as grandson's treat. A devoted grandad spent three and a half years building an accurate scaled-down replica of a Spitfire for his grandson in his shed. 
Retired Rod Blake from Carterton lovingly crafted a half-sized wooden model of the iconic Second World War fighter plane from scratch, using an airfix model as a guide. The Spitfire won a reputation as the saviour of the country when its pilots repelled the Luftwaffe during the Battle of Britain 82 years ago. The design, with its elliptical wings and sleek fuselage, was replicated as an airfix model kit which Mr Blake had bought for his grandson Jake. Mr Blake, a former coach builder, then decided to scale up the dimensions of the kit plane and set about building his own replica by hand. He said, I originally bought a 1-24 to scale airfix model of an MK Spitfire for my grandson. It was this model that I used to take all measurements for the 15-foot-long half-scale plane. He built the replica from plywood, fibreglass and flexi-ply, and even copied the iconic colour scheme and bullseye. The forks and frame and the wheels came from a motorised scooter. Mr Blake said, I originally thought that Jake could play in it, but the time I'd finished it, he was too large. He was nine when I started, and now he's nearly 16, and at Burford School. But his main fascination was my brother-in-law had an aeroplane and taught me how to fly, and I thought, I can't afford a plane, so I thought the next best thing would be to build one of my own. Since I completed it, I have continued to develop more features which add to the authenticity of the plane. I exhibit the plane at air shows, Remembrance Sunday, and also tour it around local primary schools to the great interest of pupils and teachers alike. There is always an enthusiastic question and answer session that follows on the history of the original Spitfire, as well as the build of this half-scale model. The real highlight is when pupils of a small enough size get a chance to actually sit in the cockpit of my Spitfire and have their photograph taken at the controls of the aircraft. At first, Mr Blake kept the completed plane sitting in his front garden in Carterton, where passers-by would always stop to have a look. Oh yes, it did attract a lot of attention, he said. It has an electric engine and spinning props, but my friend stores it in his double garage now and there's two rather nice pictures of granddad rod blake and his grandson jake leaning up against the fuselage of this spitfire looking very pleased with themselves and um, jake with his his biggles type goggles on um, just about to get into the cockpit or try and get into it anyway long delays as work overruns A water company has apologised to motorists as lengthy delays continued on a busy commuter route. There were long delays on the A40 near to the junction with Freeland Road in Ensham due to Thames Water's night works overrunning again last week. The works were ongoing throughout the week and engineers used two-way traffic lights. A spokeswoman for Thames Water said last week, We're sorry that motorists experienced delays whilst we carried out planned improvement works on the A40 near Ensham. Throughout the week, 
our engineers will be working between 8pm and 6am installing a new main to increase water supply in this area. During this time, two-way traffic lights will operate. And the headline of this article is Fraudsters Fleeced OAP with Bad Work. A pair of dishonest fraudsters who fleeced a pensioner out of almost £16,000 in a building scam, have been jailed. Jay Cardi, 29, was said to have asked the pensioner, in his 70s, to write cheques totalling £15,000, £590, for bungled, half-finished work on his home in Salford, Chipping Norton. Co-defendant Christopher Doherty, 29, had £8,800 paid into his bank accounts between July and August 2020, including one payment of £6,500 on the day the cheque was signed. The victim, said to have been twice driven to the bank to withdraw cash, said the fraud had left him feeling vulnerable and no longer safe in his own home. Sentencing the pair at Oxford Crown Court, Judge Michael Glendhill, KC, said, In a period of about a month in the summer of 2020, you were both members of a small group of what might likely be called rogue traders. More accurately, dishonest fraudsters pretending to be skilled builders who preyed on a vulnerable elderly pensioner who lived alone in an isolated home where he had been born and lived all his life. You ought to be ashamed of what you've done, taking away a substantial part of his pension, amounting to something short of £16,000. Jailing each for five months for the fraud, Judge Gledhill said, A message must go out loudly and clearly from this court that people pretending to be builders taking money off people by the sort of deceptions that were employed in this case is not only unacceptable, but will be met with sentences of imprisonment. Prosecutor Duncan Milne, for Oxfordshire County Council's Trading Standards Department, said the victim had a knock at his door on July 15, 2020, from a man who said his chimney required repointing. Although the pensioner declined... He said he needed his timber windows replacing. The man, who handed over a business card with the name All Type Roofing, said he would get someone to do it. The man returned the next day, this time with Jay Cardi and others. The homeowner was told work to the damp course and windows was needed, but they would do extra works to the front door and cistern for free. He was asked to pay £300 for materials and driven to the bank in a van. On July the 17th, he was asked to write two cheques for £6,500, one made out to Doherty and the other to Cardi. Wood filler was applied to windows and the timber was repainted. Putty was applied to gaps in the windows. The work continued on July the 20th, when one window was taken out and boarded up, and wood brought in order to make new windows. The victim was told one window had failed the test, 
and would cost £2,300 more. Progress stopped until July the 30th, when Cardi reappeared, citing a family bereavement for the delay. Police were called in early August, after the pensioner went with a friend to the address listed on the all-type roofing business card. A chartered surveyor found the builders had simply painted over wet rot and decayed timber, used the wrong type of replacement timber and glazing of the wrong size. The work was of no value, it was said. Cardi of Oak Ridge Lane, Aldenham, and Doherty of The Common, Hatfield, pleaded guilty to contravening professional diligence regulations, in effect, fraud. Both had previous convictions. Doherty was also sentenced for two sets of driving offences, driving a van in Bradford while disqualified and uninsured, and driving another vehicle in Coventry when he fled from police. That ended in a head-on crash with another car. He was convicted of dangerous driving. Doherty received a total of 28 months' imprisonment and a 50-month driving ban. And now we come to Editor's Choice, and this week it all revolves around this day in history. First of all, generally, on this day, in 962, Otto I invaded Italy and is crowned Holy Roman Emperor. In 1327, Edward III is crowned King of England, aged 14, though the country is ruled by his mother, Queen Isabella, and her lover, Roger Mortimer. In 1349, by this date, at least 200 people a day were being buried in London as a result of the Black Death. In 1587, Queen Elizabeth I of England signs the death warrant for her cousin, Mary, Queen of of Scots. In 1707, Frederick Louis, English Prince of Wales and son of George II, was born in Hanover in Germany. And in 1851, the English novelist Mary Shelley, uh, author of Frankenstein, dies of a brain tumour at age 53. And lastly, in 1924, Ramsay MacDonald's incoming Labour government formally recognises the Soviet Union. And now, information a bit more local. Uh, this is, comes from a book by Julianne Godson, and it's on this day, the 2nd of February... Uh, th- on this day in 1650, King Charles II's mistress, Eleanor Nell Gwynne, was born, some say, in Oxford. She certainly spent time in Oxfordshire, following the king and his court here to escape the plague in London. One day, as she drove through the streets of Oxford in her coach, the mob mistook her for her rival, Louise de Caravale. Here comes the Catholic whore, they yelled. And quick as a flash, Nell stuck her head out of the coach window. Good people, you're mistaken, she responded cheerily. I am the Protestant whore. Another clue to Nell's local connections might perhaps be detected in the titles Charles granted to the couple's son when the boy was six, Baron of Headington and Earl of Burford. Two stories describe the momentous grant. The first is that when Charles arrived one day, Nell called to the boy, Come here, you little bastard, and say hello to your father. When the king protested at the unpleasant appellation, Nell replied, Your Majesty has given me no other name by which to call him. 
and in response, Charles created him Earl of Burford on the spot. Another is that Nell grabbed the boy, dangled him out of a window, and threatened to drop him unless he was granted a peerage, upon which the king cried out, God save the Earl of Burford! In 1676, a warrant was passed for a grant to Charles Beauclerc, the king's natural son, and to the heirs male of his body of the dignities of Baron of Headington, County of Oxford, and Earl of Burford in the same county, with remainder to his brother James Beauclerc, and the heirs male of his body. Shortly afterwards, the king granted to Nell and their son a house on the edge of Home Park in Windsor, and it was promptly renamed Burford House. Now on to our notice board. There are no birthdays uh, for listeners this week, so we'll go straight on to deaths which have appeared in the Gazette this week. Firstly, Michael Florey of Whitney, who died on the 23rd of January, aged 77. Adrienne Harris, aged 83, of Whitney, and no date of death for her. Alan Pitts, who died on the 19th of January, aged 89, from Bampton. Michael Warner, on the 24th of January, aged 87, from Clanfield. And our condolences go to friends and families of the deceased. And just to end this article, just to remind you that Whitney Torch Fellowship for the Visually Impaired meets on the first Saturday of every month at two o'clock in the Welcome Church, High Street. New members are very welcome. Contact 01993 891 639. And now we move on to our next article, which again is being read by Dorothy, and it's all about the 20-mile-an-hour speed limit imposed in Whitney. And now two items regarding 20 miles per hour speed limits. 150k promoting 20 miles per hour scheme, a complete waste. That is the title of this article. Oxfordshire County Council has spent £150,000 on promoting its 20 miles per hour policy to people across Oxfordshire. A written question submitted by the Council's Shadow Cabinet Member for Highways, Liam Walker, to the January Cabinet meeting has revealed the Council has spent £151,676 on advertising its speed reduction campaign. Mr Walker described it as a complete waste of taxpayers' money. The Council is rolling out 20 MPH as the new 30 miles per hour in streets where communities via the Town or Parish Council have specifically requested them. The £8 million project will see the measures brought in over a three-year programme. Glynis Phillips, Cabinet Member for Corporate Services, confirmed that between February and March last year, the Council spent £13,032 on external advertising and producing materials including digital and social media advertising, bus packs, radio advertising and an animation. From October to December, £40,433 was spent on external advertising that included digital signage in supermarkets and shopping centres across Oxfordshire, radio, digital and social media advertising, and advertising on petrol pumps in service stations. For January and February, 
£98,211 has been planned on external advertising and producing materials. And the second item is from the letters page with the title Data on 20 MPH Opinions. Oxfordshire County Council Liam Walker has spoken on this subject previously and I must concur with his comments. This is a letter from Carl Chadwick of Whitney. The council states that it imposed the 20 miles per hour in locations where the community requests them. Would they please publish the data as to what percentage of the residents within each specific area actually requested the new limit? The only data I know of was about 900 people were approached in Whitney and around 30% supported the new limit. Is that democratic? Has the council issued a publication of essential data for, from a proper survey? So says Carl Chadwick, who writes a lot of letters to the paper. New boutique cinema venue coming soon. Oscar winners and family favourites will be coming to a new boutique cinema opening in Chipping Norton. The Living Room Cinema, a community-focused two-screen cinema, will open in late spring in former homeware and DIY store Harper's, which closed in 2016. The site will be run by the founder and the executive team behind the Living Room Cinema in Liphook in Hampshire. The company says it will play a leading role in the regeneration of Chipping Norton's High Street by repurposing the shop front of the historic Harpers and transforming it into a destination venue that transcends a chain cinema experience. Harpers had been a cornerstone of the Chipping Norton's High Street for over four decades but has stood empty in recent years. The cinema will run a bespoke film programme and stock local products. Its programme will be diverse, showcasing a range of popular and award-winning new releases, independent titles, family films and under our living room presents banner, documentaries, foreign language and art house gems. With a focus on accessibility and inclusion, subtitled, audio-described autism-friendly and parent and baby screenings will all feature regularly in the schedule. A highlight will be special events and an In Conversation With series and guests at Liphook's site have already included Hugh Bonneville and Elizabeth McGovern, writer Julian Fellows and director Dominic Cook. Where would Whitney Talking News be without an article about Jeremy Clarkson? And he doesn't fail to uh, come up to the mark this week. We've got quite a long article which will be read by Anne and Andrew. A chilly reception ahead as Clarkson show returns. Jeremy Clarkson says the backlash against Diddley Squat Farm is led by Londoners who name their country homes. In an interview ahead of the launch of Clarkson's Farm Season 2, he said... In a way, the village is divided. It's difficult to say how many people support us in the village and how many don't. Some of it, I'm sure, comes from my past, driving quickly around corners while shouting, and they didn't find that appealing. 
As far as the farm is concerned, it's split pretty neatly between those who have a house number and those who name their houses, who tend to support us because we bring business to the, to the area and jobs for their kids. If they've got a house name, they tend not to like us because they tend to have moved here from London quite recently and they don't want crowds of people coming to the farm shop. In the meeting he held in Chadlington last year to discuss the impact of the farm shop, he appeared to win over the locals, who started by saying he was not a real farmer and this was not Love Island. Mr Clarkson said, I can assure you, the people who spoke early on, I have emphatically not won them over. I lost them years ago. The ones who spoke first were the ones who really wanted to get it off their chest. But I think the room had plenty of people in who were all right with us. One guy said, I've lived in this village for 50 years. There are jobs for my kids now. My house is worth more. I can go up there and have a lively pint and look at the lovely view. It's the best thing that's happened to this area for the past 50 years, since I've lived here anyway. So there's that attitude. They're very happy. And to be brutally honest, the farm shop is over a mile from the village, so it's of an in no consequence, really, to the people who actually hate me and hate the farm shop and hate the popularity. The farm is visited now by Americans, South Africans, Germans, Finns, Dutch, anyone all over the world. He believed that the global farm community was bonded by shared challenges. There are two fundamental difficulties in farming, the weather and government. If you had consistent government thinking and consistent weather, farming would actually be quite easy. But the weather isn't consistent and the government is, well, uh, it seems to be willfully annoying most of the time. Analysing the success of the series, he said, the show came out shortly after the COVID pandemic. There have been countryside programmes before, of course. I really like Kate Humble and people who do that kind of thing. So I don't want to have a go but with them. But people think of the countryside as a newborn lamb and fresh straw in a lovely old barn. And I think my programme has shown the reality. Some of what we show is very appealing, I think. You watch and think, God, I'd love to do that. But sometimes when it's pouring with rain and everything's gone wrong, you think, well, I wouldn't want to do that. In this series, the farm comes up against the, th the threat of TB for the cattle and it's not easy watching. That was one of the most difficult areas to cover because the badger is much loved by most people in the country, said Mr Clarkson. In fact, the only people who absolutely hate badgers are farmers and people who work in the countryside. We thought, what do we do? But I thought, no, it's a farming show and you'd lose your core audience, the farmers, if you want went around saying, look at those sweet little animals. 
They are not. They are not nice animals. This much heartache they're causing to people who've worked for generations to build up a farm that's been wiped out by badgers. It was gory for sure, finding a dead badger and showing all the hedgehog blood on its mouth and all the things it seems and the cows it's infected. Then there was a cow struggling to give birth and we had to use a winch to get the calf out. You could edit that out and if you're making a Sunday evening programme you probably would. But if you want to know what life is like for farmers you've got to put it in. You put down, you put cows in a field, they keep the grass down, they turn the grass into manure, effectively, effectively, and then you keep them in a very small area of the field. So they eat every bit of grass and cover every square inch with feces. The next day they move them and you put hens where the cows were and the hens and the worms out of the manure the cows eat and then they trample the cow manure and their own manure into the fields. So you fertilise it using natural stuff rather than chemical nitrates, which is what you used to do. So I thought, right, well, I'll get some cows. But I don't know anything about cow farming. I wanted to get Frisians. And apparently they're used to make, they're used to make milk. I don't know. I ended up with a herd of shorthorns. Everyone nods and says, Oh, they're good. It's been a year of absolute disasters because I didn't know anything. And our editor has um, very tastefully edited out some of Mr Clarkson's rather (laughs) unsavoury words. And the article continues, but chilies were more successful. Clarkson says, yes, my son has now started a chili business. He's making sauces out of our chilies here, which sell very well in the shops. So that's tremendous. And it keeps him off the street. He started the sideline because I like chili sauce. I like chili in food and things. And I thought, well, that can't be very difficult we should get some chilies, and then we should grow them. So we put some polytunnels up, which isn't that difficult, and then bought a variety of chilies. I thought it would be fun to grow Carolina Reapers, because it's very easy to grow them, and they're very prolific. But my God, they're hot. Clarkson has already tested the chilli sauce with customers, and had to give out glasses of milk afterwards. I think a lot of people will want to see if they can handle it. But yes, chilies are something that haven't been a total failure. Along with the beer. He says, I found someone who knows what they're doing. Rick, who has a brewery about 12 miles away in Borton-on-the-Water. I sort of got involved in his brewery, and we use our spring barley now. It's called Hawkstone because the Hawkstone here is a Neolithic monument just on the edge of the farm. It's interesting that the only proper injury I've sustained in farming, a long-lasting one, was actually from cooking rather than farming, which just goes to show Gordon Ramsay's job is more dangerous than mine. 
And he's got more bees. Yeah, a lot more bees. Because the demand for our honey is huge. And Lisa is now putting it in whiskey. Honey whiskey at this time of year, winter, is very popular. The chili is popular and the beer is popular. Those three things have been really good, so it's nice to have some successes. Caleb Cooper has been another success in the show. Clarkson said, He's got a bit to learn about TV still, but yeah, he's massively successful, and rightly so. He deserves every bit of it. He's very hardworking, entrepreneurial, and clever. The thing about Caleb is that he was born in Chipping Norton, and as we know from the first series, he's never left it. He'd never been on a train, he'd never been in a taxi, he'd never been on any kind of boat, he'd certainly never been airborne, and he still doesn't really leave Chipping Norton. Maybe if he went to Los Angeles and people were coming up to him in the street, then that would surprise him a bit. But he isn't going to Los Angeles, he doesn't have a passport. And the rest of the team are back. Lisa and Gerald and Charlie. Clarkson says, There's always a temptation when you have successful shows to analyse what made them successful and then to expand on that. But Andy Willman, the producer, has always been very keen to not expand. For example, in the first series, Caleb went to London. Now, normally in television, you'd say, Let's send him to New York next. But no, we've done that. We've seen him as a fish out of water. Why do it again? We're making a farming program. That being said, I did put him in a helicopter. He thought he'd need a passport, bless him. He'd never seen the farm from the air, so we borrowed a helicopter and took him up in it. Charlie is also down to earth. Gerald is down to earth. Nobody would ever call Lisa down to earth. But if you'd seen her yesterday, the two of us were out making this fence on the highest, bleakest, most wind-swept part of the farm. That's what makes it good, I think, because it's all very real. And there are several photos of Jeremy Clarkson undertaking various activities around the farm, herding a cow, driving a tractor, and mending a fence. Well, that's all we have time for this week. If, as well as listening to the USB stick you receive from us each week, there are several other ways you can listen to all our editions, including magazines. These include Sonata Plus, Internet, Podcast and Alexa. And full details can be seen on our website, wtn.org.uk. Just follow the link and listen online. If on any week you've not received your stick for whatever reason, or there's a problem with producing the sticks, you can always listen on the phone by dialing 01993 555 986. And stay tuned for the TNF radio listings and audio described TV. Please remove the memory stick from the playback unit and close the metal shield. Remember to reverse the plastic address label on the yellow pouch before posting it back to us, and that can be posted back in any post box. It doesn't have to be taken to a post office. Please do this as soon as possible, as we sometimes run out of labels and pouches and are then unable to continue our service to you. If you wish to contact us, simply put a slip of paper in your pouch and we will then phone you. 
It only remains for me to thank the Whitney Gazette and Julianne Godson for the uh, articles we have used tonight. Our thanks also to our technical expert, Rob Oxspring, and to our copiers, who will be John Ashwell and Andrew Dilger. Uh, They will be copying the memory sticks, and also to our volunteers who have been checking the pouches and memory sticks as they've been returned and keeping records in the register, and they have been Penny Brading and Angela James. And finally, our four readers, Dorothy Allen, Anne Crawford, John Ashwell and Andrew Dilger. And I'm sure everyone would like to say goodbye. And so until our next edition, goodbye. goodbye. Soundings. Features from across the UK. Now for a look at some of this coming week's radio highlights, starting with Saturday, February 4th. Drama, A Leap in the Dark, a reimagining of the genesis of the first radio play on the BBC in 1922. It's on Radio 4 this time at 3 o'clock. The Maltese Falcon, a dramatisation of Dashiell Hammett's 1930 detective thriller, is on Radio 4 Extra at 5. While Opera on 3, Mozart's Cosy Van Tutti, Radio 3, 6.30pm. Raise a Laugh, followed by Eric Morecambe and Ernie Wise show on Radio 4 Extra at 8 or 8.30pm. And Stone, episode 5 of the detective thriller on Radio 4 at 9pm. Sunday, February 5th, and the Poet Laureate has gone to his shed. Simon Armitage invites Sir Ian McKellen to his writing shed to talk about his childhood and acting career. Radio 4, 4.30 in the afternoon on Sunday. The Citadel is a dramatisation of A.J. Cronin's novel, Part 1. Radio 4 Extra at 10 to 7. Believe it, the fictional comedy biography of Richard Wilson finds himself getting grumpier with age, is on Radio 4 at 7.15 on Sunday evening. While Radio 2 Piano Room, an omnibus of five performances, all with the BBC Concert Orchestra, can be heard on Radio 2. Sunday night is Music Night at 8 o'clock. An uplifting classics with Charlotte Hawkins. Classic FM, 9pm. On to programmes then that are serialised all week, Monday to Friday, so same time, same radio station, every day, Monday to Friday. Now, if you've been a regular listener to Ken Bruce's morning programme on Radio 2, I must tell you that this is his last week on Radio 2, from 9am to noon. But don't worry, he is going to another radio station. He will be on Greatest Hits Radio, and we'll tell you when he starts that. Book of the Week is Let Me Tell You What I Mean. Essays from the early career of Joan Didion, 9.45, on Radio 4, each day. Nagamonchetti has news, views and interviews on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, with Adrian Childs taking over on a Thursday and a Friday. It's on Radio 5 Live, from 11am. Composer of the Week, 
It's Smetana, Radio 3, 12 noon. Understanding the economy is on Radio 4 all week at 1.45 in the afternoon. Well, Subterranean Homesick Blues, a romantic comedy drama, is something that might take your fancy at 5.15 on Radio 4 Extra all week. Smooth Classics with Seb Stones is on Classic FM from 7pm. While Book at Bedtime, My Father's House by Joseph O'Connor. Episodes 6 to 10 on Radio 4 at 10.45. And don't forget, if there's any programme on the BBC that you miss, then you can always go back and listen to it on BBC Sounds. It is an app you can download, exactly like the radio, and you uh, find the programmes there. So if you've missed the first instalments of that book of bedtime or any of the serialised books, you can catch up on BBC Sounds. On to the rest of the highlights for the week, Monday, February 6th. And start the week, Power, Violence and Witches, a discussion with Kirsty Walk, is on Radio 4 at 9am. In and Out of the Kitchen, a comedy about a food writer, is on Radio 4 Extra at 5.30pm. Brothers-in-Law, legal comedy, Radio 4 Extra at 6. Well, just a minute, the comedy quiz, of course, on Radio 4 at 6.30 with Sue Perkins. Blue Show with Keris Matthews is on Radio 2 on Monday at 9pm. While word of mouth rounds off the day, snack, crackle and every little helps. The language of advertising with Michael Rosen. Radio 4, 11pm. Tuesday, February 7th, in time to the music, The House of the Rising Sun, an exploration of the origins of the song from the 17th century to the 1964 pop song. The case of the MV Brilliant Virtuoso, episode 2, an investigation into the attack on the oil tanker in 2011. Radio 4, the place to listen to this, 3.30 in the afternoon on Tuesday. Alternatively, the afternoon concert on Radio 3, including Tchaikovsky's Violin Concerto, Gershwin's An American in Paris and Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. The Goon Show is on Radio 4 Extra at 6pm. Well, In the Chair, a political comedy, follows it at 6.30 on Radio 4 Extra. In Touch, as it's a Tuesday, is back on Radio 4 for the latest news for those people that are blind or partially sighted at 8.40pm. While on Radio 2, The Jazz Show, with Jamie Cullum at 9pm. Wednesday, February 8th. Bloomsbury is a comedy parody of the Bloomsbury Group with Miriam Margulies. Radio 4, 11.30am. Hancock's Half Hour is on Radio 4 Extra at 6pm, while the absolutely brilliant Conversations from a Long Marriage, a comedy with Joanna Lumley and Roger Allen, is on Radio 4 at 6.30 on Wednesday. Radio 3 in concert in the evening, including Grieg's Piano Concerto and Shostakovich's Symphony No. 10. Radio 3... 7.30pm. Problem of Leisure, an exploration of the public's feelings towards automation and increased leisure, is on Radio 4 Extra at 8pm if you prefer something different. While Pay Freezes, from the winter of disconnect to the crash, Radio 4, 9pm.
Thursday, February 9th, and a drama, Nazis, The Road to Power, Episode 5, The Little Men in the Late 1920s. It's on Radio 4 at 2.25 in the afternoon. Slightly lighter, Ramblings, Claire Balding, along the oldest road in Great Britain, Radio 4, 3 o'clock. Men from the Mystery, Comedy with Richard Murdoch, Radio 4 Extra, at 6pm. While Radio 3 in concert, Marla's Symphony No. 9 is on Radio 3 at 7.30pm. The Country Show with Bob Harris is on Radio 2 at 9, rounding off Thursday. And Friday, February 10th. Thanks a lot, Milton Jones. Comedy on Radio 4 at 11.30 in the morning. Antisocial, an investigation into something that's being currently fiercely debated. Radio 4 at just after midday. More or less, Tim Harford explains number statistics in the news and everyday life on Radio 4 at 4.30. An add to playlist, a new series of the prize-winning programme which finds connections between 40 pieces of music over eight instalments is back on Radio 4 at 7.15 in the evening. And lastly, Buried, an omnibus of last week's instalments investigating one of the worst environmental crimes in UK history. Radio 4, 9pm. That's it. Thank you to Angela for the highlights this week. May I wish you a peaceful, safe and enjoyable week of radio listening. Hello, this is Val from Otley Talking News with my selection of audio described TV programmes starting Saturday the 4th of February to Friday the 10th of February 2023. So let's see what we can find that may be of interest to you this week. We start with Saturday the 4th of February. Join poet, playwright and novelist Jackie Kay in The Great Food Guys at 11.30am on BBC One. Or you could join hairy biker Dave Myers as he searches for the origins of baking in Egypt in a cook abroad at 12 noon on BBC Two. Although not audio described, the commentary should give you an idea of the action in Six Nations Rugby, which starts today with the first match between Wales and Ireland on BBC One at 1.15pm and the match between England and Scotland on ITV at 4pm. Time to visit the black chair again as Clive Myrie puts the questions to four new contestants in Celebrity Mastermind at 5.35pm on BBC One. Lucy Worsley tries to understand what caused the plague, which spread to our shores in 1348 and proceeded to wipe out around half the population. The Black Death, Lucy Worsley Investigates, is at 7.50pm on BBC Two. Jacob throws himself into work and Ethan has a revelation in Casualty at 8.50pm on BBC One. A new six-part Irish crime drama starts tonight. A Connemara-based fishing boat, Skipper, takes drastic action to protect her family from a drug cartel in the first episode of The Catch on BBC Four at 9pm. The second episode follows at 9.45. 
Moving on to Sunday the 5th. Although not audio described, you could start the day early listening to what key politicians and public figures have to say when they are being interviewed in Sunday with Laura Coonsberg at 9am on BBC One. The rookie cooks are down to the last eight in the fifth episode of Young Masterchef at 3.35pm on BBC One. A baby hippo learns to survive in the river in Serengeti 3 at 4.35pm on BBC One. Lyra and Will reunite with Mary and hear a story that changes everything in the final episode of His Dark Materials at 7pm on BBC One. The eight remaining potters are taken up on the roof to create gargoyles in the Great Pottery Throwdown at 7.45 on Channel 4. Call the Midwife is on BBC One at 8pm when Trixie supports a very young mother through a difficult time. DCI Stanhope investigates the death of a former soldier in tonight's Vera at 8pm on ITV One. On Catherine's final shift, scores are settled for good and Ryan faces a dilemma. Tonight we find out how it's all going to end in Happy Valley at 9pm on BBC One. Covid hits HMS Queen Elizabeth, resulting in 400 members of staff in isolation in tonight's episode of The Warship Tour of Duty on BBC Two at 9pm. Now for those programmes which are on at the same time throughout the week. Homes Under the Hammer is at 11.15am. Bargain Hunt is at 12.15, Escape to the Country is at 3pm and The Repair Shop is at 3.45pm. All these programmes are on BBC One Monday to Friday. Doctors is at 1.45pm, also on BBC One, but Monday to Thursday. Dickinson's Real Deal is on ITV One at 2pm, Monday to Friday. Heartbeat is on ITV3 at 5.40pm this week, Monday to Friday. And on BBC4 at 7pm, Great British Railways is on Monday to Thursday. Let's have a look at Monday the 6th of February. Robson joins forces with his brother and uncle as the trio turn their hand to landscape painting and fly fishing on a lake in Northumberland in Robson Green's Weekend Escapes. This is on BBC Two at 6.30pm and continues at the same time each evening this week. The Dragon's Den entrepreneur and keen walker Sarah Davis explores the lush Swinton estate in North Yorkshire and reflects on her life, career and family in Spring Walks at 7.30pm on BBC Four. The Black Chair beckons yet again in Mastermind at 7.30pm on BBC Two and more teams return for a second round match of University Challenge at 8.30pm on BBC Two. As the series charting the West's struggle to deal with the Russian president continues, British Prime Minister David Cameron goes to great lengths to bring Putin on side. In Putin versus the West at 9pm on BBC Two. A gruelling night shift at the acute unit causes Helen to confide in Jack in maternal at 9pm on ITV1. In July 1992, 23-year-old Rachel Nicholl was stabbed to death on Wimbledon Common, 
and an innocent man was convicted of her murder. But in 2002, using cutting-edge DNA technology, Dr Angela Gallup recounts how the real murderer was brought to justice in Cold Case Forensics, The Murder of Rachel Nickel on ITV1 at 10.45pm. On to Tuesday the 7th. The actress Nina Wadia unwinds during a walk starting in the village of Muka in the Yorkshire Dales in tonight's Spring Walks at 7.30pm on BBC4. Bradley and Barney continue their travels in Costa Rica in Bradley and Barney Walsh Breaking Dad on ITV1 at 9pm. At 15, Shamima Begum made global headlines when she ran away from London to join the terror group Islamic State. Four years later, pregnant with her third child, she was desperate to come home, but appeared to show little remorse for her time with the group. In this documentary, she gives an account of what happened to her to investigative journalist Josh Baker, who's been following her story from day one. The Shamima Begum story is on BBC Two at 9pm. Nicole's bossiness pushes her sisters to breaking point in the drama The Family Pile at 9.30pm on ITV1. Now for Wednesday the 8th of February. We spend almost £723 million every year on socks. Greg Wallace travels to a Leicester factory to find out how they make one and a half million socks annually in Inside the Factory at 7pm on BBC Two. Several choices at eight tonight. Samir is ready for the basketball team's big game, but she's shocked to discover an offensive group chat made by the male students in Waterloo Road at 8pm on BBC One. Michael Palin learns how three tiny Baltic nations, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, broke away from the Soviet Union in Michael Palin's New Europe at 8pm on BBC Four. Lewis and Hathaway are called in to investigate the death of the standout competitor at a professional quiz weekend. Find out who's responsible in Lewis at 8pm on ITV3. Stacey and her team challenge the Viney family to sort their life out in seven days in Sort Your Life Out with Stacey Solomon at 9pm on BBC One. Amanda visits some pig farmers on the Yorkshire-Lancashire border in tonight's Amanda Owen's Farming Lives on More 4 at 9pm. Now we have programmes for Thursday the 9th of February. More hopeful entrepreneurs visit the Dragon's Den at 8pm on BBC One. As more dogs are looking for new homes, a former Marine weighs up whether a bumptious lurcher is right for him and his partner as his eyesight fails in tonight's episode of The Dog House on Channel 4 at 8pm. The Queen is pregnant at last and the royal couple are thrilled, but their joy is soon undermined by the rumour mill of Versailles. Find out more in Marie Antoinette at 9pm on BBC Two. Another cold case documentary featuring an unsafe conviction. In 1988, 20-year-old Lynette White was brutally knifed to death in Cardiff and three men were found guilty of her murder. But 11 years later, DNA technology led the police to the real killer. 
Cold Case Forensics, The Murder of Lynette White is on ITV1 at 9pm. Grayson Perry travels through the north of England, visiting Wigan, Blackpool and Manchester, as he concludes his exploration of Englishness. Grayson Perry's Full English is on Channel 4 at 9pm. And finally, we come to Friday the 10th. Bryony May Williams is in Germany to discover why schnapps is always clear, despite being made from bright, colourful fruits, in Food Unwrapped at 8pm on Channel 4. Amanda aims to bring a slice of Hollywood to Sicily with a banana leaf-themed boudoir as she takes the reins designing the master bedroom in Amanda and Alan's Italian Job at 8.30pm on BBC One. Time for our Friday night visit to the Caribbean. Neville receives a letter telling them a murder is going to be committed and not long after the team are called to the harbour where a body is pulled from the water. Death in Paradise is on BBC One at 9pm. Now it's time for our weekly visit to Italy. Bella is horrified when Cecil invites her blackmailer for tea. Danione turns up the pressure by cutting off provisions to the hotel and Bella realises how serious his threats are when one of her staff is beaten up by his thugs. Hotel Portofino is on ITV1 at 9pm. TNF Soundings 